last week I talked about the kingdom of heaven and uh, about the church. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So I want to continue that theme. I've been in the Holy Land one time, but through the ministry of Ray Vanderland, I've taken a, a 90 lesson video teaching tour of the Holy Land. It's history, it's custom, it's, it's culture, it, and life, what it was probably like in the first century for first century Christians. Uh, the first slide you'll see, there's this ancient ruins of, of Ephesus. You're looking at the Agora, and it was a marketplace. That was their, their mall, ladies. So uh, and you don't see it in all its glory because these are just uh, the remains. Ephesus was this important city located in, uh, in a position between east and west. To the west was the Roman Empire, and to the east, you had silks and spices and fabrics and all sorts of natural goods, which the Roman world did not have. So Ephesus was a center for buying and for selling. It was ruled toward the end of the first century by the Roman emperors who believed they were gods. They demanded that the subjects of the kingdom worship them. And one of the ways that they, they enforced and taught emperor worship was that in order to buy and sell or trade, at the Agora in Ephesus, you had to first make an offering to Caesar. And once you offered incense to the Caesar, you could then buy and sell at the Agora. Most scholars believe that there was some sort of mark that you took, some sort of ink stain on your hand that was proof that you acknowledged Caesar as God, and then you could take part in commerce. The Jewish Christians of that first century wouldn't participate and they said, anyone who sets themselves up as God is in direct opposition to the real God. Anyone who says, worship me, has to be operating in the power of the devil, who they referred to as a dragon. In apocalyptic literature, like we see in Revelation, they referred to anyone who set themselves up as a God, as a beast. So the question in Ephesus and at the end of that first century is, do I take the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell? Now imagine, you're a seamstress with five children. You take fabric from the east, you sell it, and you make clothing to sell. This is how you feed your family. Then you come to believe in God, as revealed in Jesus the Messiah. And then you embrace the God of Israel, whose Messiah has come to announce the kingdom of God. You begin worshiping this one true God, and you become a part of the Christian community, and you show up at the Agora, and they say, well, you don't have the mark. You need to go back to the altar and offer incense. So what do you do? What does a farmer do? What does the silk dealer do? What does the shoemaker do? I got to feed my family. They're hungry. Do I take the mark of the beast or not? That was life at the end of the first century in Ephesus. Now I want to introduce you to the Caesars and how they intersect with the Bible. I used to not like history, but I fell in love with history when I started studying biblical history and New Testament history and how God prepared the world for the coming of his son. When Julius Caesar dies, a, when Julius Caesar dies, a comet appears in the sky and 12 witnesses step forward and they say, we saw a comet in the sky. And so Augustus, who is Caesar's son, takes advantage of the moment and he says, of course you saw a comet. Uh, that was Julius Caesar ascending to the, his right place among the gods in heaven. So the phrase that he popularized was, I saw the Son of God ascend to the right hand of God the Father. Anyone heard that anywhere before? 
So from Augustus's point of view, if Julius Caesar is a god, then that makes him the son of God. So he began a systematic campaign to show everybody that he, in fact, was the son of God sent to earth to bring about universal peace and salvation and prosperity. So around the turn of the first century, secular prophets like Virgil were prophesying that something major was about to happen in the course of human history. Now, can I get an amen? Because that's when Jesus was born and lived. They didn't know it was Jesus, but they they knew something was coming. They didn't know what it was. They just thought something big was coming. They prophesied that somebody was coming who was going to mediate between heaven and earth and was going to bring about a shift in the universe and the human condition. So there was a whole series of prophecies and oracles and poems circulating in the pagan world that something big was about to happen. So when Augustus took the throne, the question that these oracles and prophets posed to him, now get this, was, are you the one who is to come? Later, uh, Dr. Luke, yeah, he's the one that wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, tells a story about a teacher named John the Baptist who says to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Augustus inaugurated a celebration of his divinity of his arrival as a one, he thought he was the one that they were prophesying about. He had a 12-day celebration called Advent. He had a choir, the youth of the Roman Empire would sing hymns to him, proclaiming the eternal reign, his eternal reign as the son of God come to earth to bring about eternal reign of peace and harmony and prosperity. They talked about joy and salvation. One of the popular phrases that was spread was, there is no name save Augustus by which men can be saved. His priest, during the 12 days of his Advent proclamation, offered sacrifices and gave the people incense that they could offer for the forgiveness of their sins provided by the Son of God, Augustus. Emperor worship was huge, and it went to the ends of the earth. Then Augustus was succeeded by Tiberius. So by 37 AD, Julius Caesar, Caesar and Augustus and Tiberius were dead. At this time, there was a group of revolutionaries, at least they were seen as revolutionaries in the eyes of the Romans. They were following a Jewish rabbi who then posed the question to the Roman empire, hey, hey, your God died and your next God died and your next God died. Our God lives. Now that's ancient church history in a very tiny nutshell. (laughs) And then Augustus is succeeded by Tiberius. So, by, and so well, I'm going to go on. We're going to, we're, going to, we're going to advance about 50 years because we don't have time this morning to do everything. So this group, of, this group of Christians said, in your universal reign of peace and joy, your Tiberius died, your Augustus died, our king lives. And so a rabbi, we know him as St. Paul, a rabbi named Paul said a group of 500 saw him alive after his resurrection. He appeared to a bunch of us, so this continued. And then each emperor took emperor worship and tweaked it just a little bit and modified it according to their political needs. So we're gonna fast forward, as I said, to an emperor named Domitian. He's ninth in that list of 11. He reigned from AD 81 to about 96, 15 long, hard years. Domitian was a bad dude. He was evil to the core. He demanded that even his wife refer to him as my Lord and my God. 
I can't even get my wife to call me master. I, I don't know what's going on with that. <laughs> he issued an empirical edict that all statues of him were to be made from solid gold. He began his letters like this. Our Lord and our God command you. He saw himself as God on earth. He believed he was a son of God brought to earth to bring about universal peace and salvation. He demanded to be worshiped. Everywhere he went, he had a choir of 24 singers who would go before him and after him singing and chanting, our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power. One of the priests of the empire offended him, so he had her buried alive. One group of people called the Mazanians offended him, so his response was, I cease to permit them to exist. Wipe them out. And he did. There was a revolt called Saturnius, uh, and in that revolt, he slaughtered all of them. And then he invited his main ruling officials to the palace for a dinner and set the table with each of their tombstones in front of their plates. So you ate dinner with your tombstones facing you as a subtle reminder that what happens when you revolt against Domitian. In this picture of Domitian, you see in his hand a scroll. A scroll was one of the keys to the ruling of Caesar. It, was, it has writing on both sides and for all the divine names of Caesar. Names were big, language was big and keeping and holding power. And the scroll listed all the rights and all the reasons and all the entitlements that this Caesar had to rule. This Caesar was not only one worthy to open the scroll, meaning figuratively to rule human history, there is only one Caesar, and this Caesar can open the scroll and declare his godness and can direct the course of human history. Domitian inaugurated a series of games called the Domitian Games. He had his own Olympics in his honor. So picture a stadium with 60, 70, 80,000 people. His Olympics will begin by all the leaders of the various provinces coming before him. He would then address the various leaders of these various provinces that reported to him. He would say, well, I have this for you and I have this against you. If you don't stop doing this, I will come and snuff you out. And to you, the elder of such and such, I like what I see here and here is well done, but I have this against you. If you don't fix it, I'm going to come and wipe you out. He would address all the various regions. Then they would begin the worship portion of Domitian. Now, I didn't, I didn't put fill in the blank this morning in your bulletins for a simple reason. I just want you to listen, okay? If you can have anybody that wants a copy of my manuscript this morning, just email me. My email address is there, and you can have it. So he had a group of priests that were employed to lead the masses in their worship of him. The priests and all those who attended the games all wore white. The priests would wear gold crowns on their heads and their crowns would have written on the forehead the divine titles of Domitian and they would lead the people in worship of Domitian. So you'd have 60, 70, 80,000 people and you'd shout and you would cheer and worship Domitian in the midst of his games. So you're an eight or nine or 10 year old and you get to go to the Domitian games and you get to take part. You watch all these leaders of the provinces report to, to Domitian and then the priest will begin leading you in worship. And one of the highlights of the Domitian games was a horse race involving four horses of four different colors. At the end, they would have gladiator matches and a lot of people would kill each other. Then somebody would come out and clean all the dead bodies of the animals and fighters out of the ring. 
And the person who cleaned out all these dead bodies would wear a mask of a classic hero called Hades, who was also called death in the ancient world. There was Domitian. That was Domitian and his empire at the end of the first century. Now, Domitian had to pick a city, which would be his world headquarters for worship, and guess where it was? Ephesus. He understood the power of image and picture, so he decided to build a platform. His father, Vespasian, suffered a fatal head wound in battle in Judea and miraculously lived to tell about it. He was referred to as a beast, the beast that survived a near fatal head wound. Vespasian had built a statue, but Domitian made it bigger. In the city of Ephesus, he built a massive platform and a temple to himself. And below the platform, there are 24 statues of the gods and goddesses of the Greek Roman pantheon etched in the columns. And as you can tell by the design, he's telling us something about himself by standing on the backs of all these gods. On top of the platform, he built a 27-foot tall statue. The arm alone is nine feet nine feet long. The reason being is that if you came into Ephesus by way of the sea or by land through the valley, you could see this 27-foot statue of Domitian. And by it, you'd be reminded that Domitian was Lord of heaven and earth. But guess what? (laughs) Domitian had a problem. He was powerful. He was wealthy and could kill anyone he desired. He had a problem because there was this small group of people in the corner of Ephesus that refused to bow to him. (laughs) And this made him furious. Notice what one historian said. Domitian was the first emperor to understand that behind the Christian movement, there stood a figure who threatened the glory of the emperors. And Domitian was the first to declare war on this figure and his followers. (laughs) This one called Jesus. This Jesus who said... I'm going to build my kingdom. He didn't have to shout. He had all the authority. I'm going to build my kingdom. (laughs) The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So in Ephesus, Domitian had incense altars built on the main streets. He would parade through the city and would stop at the altars and the crowds would all bow down and acknowledge him as Lord and God. And if a person didn't bow down, they would be killed on the spot because they didn't mess around. So the question at the end of the first century is, what do I do? It's Domitian's birthday and he's coming to town and my stonecrafters guild or my seamstress guild or all the other mothers at school are are going, everybody is showing up or you die. Everybody's doing it. If you don't, you die. What do you do? There are ancient historical documents that tell us that this little group made him furious. This little Christian group had a leader. And if Domitian could chop off his head, then he could leave them without a guide. And then this movement would disappear. There are some sources, historical sources, that allude to Domitian calling in this group's pastor. And we know this pastor as John the Revelator, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos to separate him from his flock. And I have a copy this morning with me of his letter from the Isle of Patmos, and it's called the book of Revelation. We all have it in our Bibles. Notice Revelation 2 and 3, the letter to the seven churches, each one stating what's good about them and what needed improvement. The time period in which this letter was sent was right when Domitian was doing this. Talk about in-your-face Christianity. We won't bend. We won't bow. 
to a false god. Revelation 2, 2 and 4, I know what you do, how you work hard, never give up. I know you don't put up with the false teachings of evil people. You've tested those who say they're apostles, but really are not, and you found they are liars, but I have this against you. You have left the love you had in the beginning. So someone reading this would recognize that that's the way they talked at the Domitian Games. By the way, uh, when I showed you that Agora shopping area at the beginning, there was a group of Christians that came along and said, ah, come on, just offer the incense. Just take the mark on your hand. No big deal. You got to live, right? You got to eat. It's not like he's really a God. You know, he's just a fake. It's just all political. A guy with a big ego and a lot of money and armies. It's not like in your heart you believe he's a God. It's no big deal. Just do it. You got to feed your family, right? You got to feed them. Just go through the motions. This group was called the Nicolaitans. Notice what John says in verse six, but there is something you do that is right. You hate the Nicolaitans. You hate what the Nicolaitans do as much as I. Flip up to chapter four, John counters what was next in the Domitian games with truth. In the Domitian games, there's this massive throne that Domitian would sit on. Verse two, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white, had crowns of gold on their heads. Day and night, the four living creatures never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. Remember that one statue of Domitian reveals him holding a scroll. The one worthy to open the scroll meant figuratively that a person had the power to rule human history. Now listen to some of Revelation 5. Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming to a, in a loud voice who was worthy to break the seal and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I would add, even including that chump, the mission. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll with its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. Notice it's a lamb. It's not a wealthy, powerful leader with a big army. It's the lamb. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and they sang a new song. Now this isn't the song they've been hearing people sing about Domitian, but this was a new number. And it went like this. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. What's he saying? I've seen the throne of the universe and Domitian is not on it. God is. So don't bow down whatever you do. He's a fake. It's a fraud. It's all a lie. I've, I've seen the real thing. I imagine the first ones to read this wept. Can you imagine an eight, nine, 10-year-old kid who had been and seen the Domitian games? He knew exactly what John 
was talking about here. They wept because they were real people at a real place at a real time who had friends and neighbors and family who were being slaughtered in the name of Jesus. And John is saying, it's better to die for God than to live for some fake Domitian. We have a lot of Domitians around us, don't we? They say, bow down. And often there are those moments when everybody around us is bowing down. But you don't understand. In my business, you have to cheat and cut corners. It's the only way to make it. Everybody in my business does it. It's the only way to make it. But mom, everybody dresses like this. But dad, all my friends are going to be there. But you don't understand. Everybody talks like this. Everybody is cynical. Everybody has to have a little edge. You have to always be ready to put others down in order to maintain an upper hand. You don't understand. I have to have all this stuff. Everybody around me has all this. Give to God's work, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. Hey, get real. I have my own family to take care of. We have domitions of arrogance and power and prestige and exclusivism. I'm better than everyone else. Sex, drugs, pornography, sports addictions, political correctness. We're surrounded by domitions. And John is saying, whatever you do, don't bow down. In the first and second century documents, we find something pretty mind-blowing. There's this general belief among scholars that by the first century, by the first century, 30 to 40 years after Domitian, Ephesus was 85 to 90% Christian. And Jesus said, it's my church. I'm going to build it. The gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Well, I say praise the Lord. Ephesus became a thriving center of Jesus worship. No money, no buildings, no budget, no clever bumper stickers. And somehow the whole city got turned upside down for Jesus. And that's because those early Christians knew how to love. They knew how to break down social barriers and invite everyone in to be part of the group that would bend and bow and confess Jesus as Lord. And what happened in Ephesus spread throughout Asia Minor and Pergamon, Thyatira, Laodicea, and Colossus. So in a couple hundred years, you have the whole empire having Christians all over it. If our brothers and sisters from Ephesus could speak to us this morning, what kind of advice? What kind of advice would they have for us? What would they say about the kinds of things we complain about? <laughs> I have to laugh. I have to laugh at myself. You know, let, let me get this straight. Traffic? Oh, I don't know how you do it. You had to walk? For real? You, you were inconvenienced? You, you were caught in the back up in the parking lot? I don't know how you get through those kind of things. For us, the question was, would we be beheaded in the parking lot or not? Let me get this straight. You can meet in public as Christians. And you can talk about Jesus and anyone can come. And you can say things publicly about Jesus and no government leaders are going to come in and kill you. You can sing praise out loud in public to God and live could they even conceive this? You bow to political correctness? Well, why? Because you think you'll be rejected by your friends or shunned by your colleagues? You don't show up on a regular basis to worship because someone offended you? You've been disappointed by people? You stayed up too late last night? Oh, I guess I don't understand. There's a series of underground tunnels in Cappadocia 
It's an underground city, several stories below the earth. And the early Christians moved under the earth. They lived in dirt tunnels, two and three stories below the earth for months and months at a time so they could worship and live together in authentic community and not get killed by the emperors. And you can worship above ground? I believe they would speak to us very strongly about what it means to be a Christian. They would say to us, you can do it. Come on. Hebrews tells us we've got this great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us and they're, they're cheering us on. You can do it. You can transform your family, your neighborhood, your street, your community, your city. Ephesus became 85% Christian. It does matter how you live. It's a great thing to have eternal life, but that's not the only thing. How are you living right now? Are you being transformed and are others being transformed because of your life and your witness? But we don't have enough money. Well, sorry, we didn't have money either. It was the Holy Spirit (laughs) we needed. Let me get this straight. You have the Spirit of God, you have prayer, you have scripture, you have each other. You have the great hope that in the end, God is going to make all things right. That's our hope, folks. I'm assuming they would say to us and the struggles we face and the demissions that we bow to, the demissions of how thin we are, how smart we are, the demission of how good we look in other people's eyes and how we'll just about do anything to save face in other people's eyes instead of being authentic and honest with one another. The demission of all we've accomplished, the demission of how quick our tongue is to put people down that might threaten us or not agree with us. They would say, oh, come on, you can do it. You don't have to bow to that, to that at all. The addictions that say bow down, those addictions that you use to fill the hole that only God can fill. They would say, don't bow down. You can do it. And the more the Caesars tried to crush the movement, the more they killed its leaders, the faster it grew. And that has not changed today. There are millions of Christians today in China. The more the church is persecuted, the more it flourishes The harder it was to be a follower of Jesus, the faster it grew. And the easier it became to be a Christian, the slower the movement grew. Because 300 years later, when it became the legal accepted thing under Constantine to be a Christian, and you needed to be a Christian to climb the social ladder, the growth of the church slowed tremendously. So how badly do you want to follow Jesus? And one final thing before we go, John does say something fascinating about worship here. Chapter five, he notices first there's a lamb with 24 elders. And then he notices the prayers of the saints. And then they're singing a new tune. And then in verse 11, there's 10,000 times 10,000 of angels. And the progression is finally completed in verse 13. When the heavens, when he hears every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them is saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory forever and ever. We are never worshiping God alone. We like to think at 10.45 a.m. the worship service started, well, at least it did here. No, at 10.45 a.m. we joined a worship service that was already going on. There's this eternal worship service going on and it's going on 24 seven and we're never alone in our worship and it involves the entire created realm. Psalm 19, which I had memorized at one time, (laughs) says in a poetic way, 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day by day, they pour forth speech and night by night, they display knowledge. The heavens, just by their beauty and its infinity, worship God. And Jesus said, if you keep the stones, if you keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You know what? I want to be smarter than a rock. (laughs) I do. And my prayer for you, and they're listed in their worship folder, my prayer for us all, including myself, is that we can identify the demissions in our world. As the Apostle Paul said, test everything. Test everything. Hold on to what's good. Stay away from every kind of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5. May you see them for what they are. And may you never bow down because you've seen the throne and you've seen who's on it. And may you who are struggling be reminded that God is on the throne and you can make it. You're going to make it. Don't give up. May you be reminded that Domitian and his kingdom are a pile of rocks and the revolution of Jesus and his kingdom are stronger than ever. Jesus said, this is my church. I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Have you chosen to be a part of the living church? He gives all of us that invitation. I'm not talking about just being a part of a local organized congregation. That's a good, we need to do that. If you're part of the living church, he wants us to be part of a local expression. But are you first and foremost, have you bowed your knee, confessed Jesus as Savior, and experienced the total forgiveness of all your sins? And in the very presence of Jesus, have you invited him in, the Holy Spirit, to dwell within, to help give you power over all that opposes Christ and his church, to help give you power in your own life? Have you made that commitment? If you haven't, you'll, you'll blossom in his garden of unconditional love. He doesn't condemn us. He invites us to be part of his family, to be his children. It's a great thing to belong to that family. Amen. God bless you all. What did Jesus say? Hey, I'm going to build my church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Are you part of this church? Because he's coming back. This universal reign of God. He's, he's been reigning ever since, I mean, forever. It came near to us when Jesus came to earth. And he's going to culminate that kingdom when he comes and makes all things right. Father, thank you for those first century Christians. Man, did they have stamina? Did they have fortitude? Because they found their refuge in you. And I've been, been reading the testimonies of Christians already clear around the other part of the world. Lord, you're giving them the same fortitude to stand up for your kingdom. We thank you that we've been privileged to be together. May we ask our, continually ask ourselves these questions that we don't let anything or anyone sit on the throne of our heart and life except Jesus. Because there's all kinds of things in our world trying to dethrone Jesus that want to be on the throne of our lives, that want to be at the center, that want to be the center of all we do. Help us to keep you in the center and the circumference will take care of itself. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling 
to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all ages, now, and forevermore. 